success. It's such a complicated idea, and yet for so long, we've all collectively subscribed to a single definition of the word, which was likely given to us by a white-haired dude somewhere in a boardroom in the 1960s. And there's nothing wrong with that definition, with the notion of climbing a corporate ladder with a singular focus. But it's time to make space for a few other definitions, for side hustles and well-being and failing forward, and for the idea that success is a wild ride, not the destination at the end of it. Join me for a journey into the lives of women who are redefining success and paving the way for others with grit and grace. I'm Sophia Amoruso, the founder and CEO of Girlboss Media, and this is Girlboss Radio. Hey guys, it's Sophia and Maggie Renshaw here at the Girlboss HQ in Silver Lake, Los Angeles, California, USA. What's up, Maggie? Hey, what's up? How's your day going? Uh, really good. And it's about to get even better because today's episode of Girlboss Radio is a really special one. I get to talk to Amina Tussauds, she prefers being called Amina, who you all probably know from one of the greatest podcasts of all time, which she does with Ann Friedman called Call Your Girlfriend. She's the co-founder of Tech Lady Mafia. And if you're not following her on Instagram, it's at Aminatu, A-M-I-N-A-T-O-U. If you're not following her, you're really missing out because her stories are pretty much the greatest thing ever. It's true. Amina is joining us as part of a special partnership with Sephora Collection. And as a matter of fact, we've actually joined forces to put together a first for Girlboss and a first for Sephora Collection. It's a whole new podcast series of incredible storytelling from notable founders, creators, and thought leaders called Hashtag Lip Stories, where these women will be sharing some of their wildest moments, exceptional experiences, and unforgettable memories from their real lives. And why the name Lip Stories? Well, if you haven't heard, Lip Stories are an amazing new line of lipsticks from Sephora Collection. There are 40 different shades with three different finishes, metal, cream, and matte. The formula is beyond smooth, and they're all inspired by the real-life stories of women, just like the ones we're featuring. To hear more from Amina, be sure to download Lip Stories on April 12th on the Girlboss Radio Network in the iTunes Store or wherever good podcasts are found. She'll be hosting one of our episodes. That's hashtag Lip Stories starting April 12th. So you grew up in Austin. What was what was I did not wait, grow you up didn't. in Austin. I went to college in Austin. Okay, wait, wait, wait. No, you grew up all over the world. Okay, I know this. I grew up in um, Nigeria and in Belgium. Nigeria and Belgium. And Very also weird. you lived in fr- France as well? Yes, my we have family in France. We my parents are diplomats, so we like bopped around a lot. <laughs> what is a diplomat exactly? I mean, a diplomat is not a job. It's a status that you get for doing different kinds of jobs. So uh, my dad specifically was an uh, he was an economist and he represented West Africa to the European Union. And so that's how we were afforded diplomatic status. How did you end up going to school in Austin? I always went to like very small private schools, like all over (laughs) tiny places. I went to boarding school for high school. My graduating class was 29 people. That's the biggest class I'd ever been a part of. And I wanted, like, the big American movie college experience (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, because, I guess, yeah, I watch a lot of teen movies. And I wanted to go somewhere fun and uh, also, like, have a good time. It was, like, a place where there's good academics, but also I just want to like the city I lived in. I looked at all these other colleges 
And I was like, yeah, like this school looks great, but the town is like not awesome. And Austin and UT like had all of that for me. I was like, it's Texas, but it's not like red Texas. So I think I can handle it. And Mm -hmm. it was a dream. Was it like the movie experience? Oh, 100%. (laughs) Like ginormous football games. We won the Rose Bowl the next year. Yeah, it was, it was like that, but also it was like Austin. So it was very chill. You know, you get Mm -hmm. to do... It's like, uh, it's a really big school, so there's something for everyone. And also Austin is amazing. It's, uh, I tell everybody it's like my forever home in America because it's where I became an adult. Mm-hmm. And there's just, yeah, I learned so much about myself here and I'm really grateful for it. What did you study? I studied political science because I wanted to be Christian Amanpour. I was like, I'm going to be a reporter like her. She's the smartest, most beautiful woman in the world. And uh, I studied Middle Eastern studies and political science. I don't do any of those things now. <laughs> And yeah, so I, and I want to get into that because your your story is so interesting. What did you do after graduation? After graduation, I graduated college in two thousand seven. So um, for those of you who remember the dark ages, it was two thousand seven. Probably was the last college class where like some people had jobs when they graduated. Like this used to be <laughs> a thing. Like juniors would just like have jobs and then <laughs> you'd like do senior mm-hmm. year, like spring break, and then go to your job. And we were kind of the last class where, like, that was, like, some people had jobs and some people didn't. And I was like, something is weird. And somebody was like, well, yeah, the economy is weird. And we just kind of didn't understand. Yeah, so I, remember, I, I remember that. I was like, uh, I thought I, like, moved back home to Belgium because I was like, eh, like, I'm done here. That's what I'm going to do. And 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 then I was like, and it was also, like, a lazy way to, I looked for jobs and I couldn't find one. And I was like, fine, I'm moving back to Europe. And uh, like I said, I went to boarding school. So the last time that I lived at home full time, I was 14. And literally two weeks into being home, I was like, this is not going to work. <laughs> and so I decided to move to D.C. because that's what I that's where I thought I was going to live. I was going to work in politics. And I moved to Washington, D.C. I didn't know a single soul I show up there. I apply to like every internship. I get one. I like probably sent like a thousand resumes. And then I get a call back from John Kerry's office, actually, from his press office (laughs) on the Hill. And you can definitely tell that this lady just needs to fill a job and she probably needs to fill a checklist where she's like kind of trying to ask me what kind of diversity I bring without like saying it. Like I could just like I just like felt that vibe. And I was like, I don't care. Internship is internship. And she offered it to me. And then I was like, great, how much does it pay? And she was like, uh, have you heard of interning? It's for free. And I was like, excuse <laughs> me? I, like, I'm like, I have bills to pay. I've been supporting myself since I was 18. Like, I paid my way through college. So wow. I didn't, like, I couldn't afford to work for free, right? It's like 40 hours a week. And, like, how are you supposed to live off of that? And so I was just like, wow, this is this what the real world is? They don't teach you this stuff in college. And yes. <laughs> just basically struggled my way there. And it all worked out in the end. I didn't get to work for John Kerry, his loss. But, you know, it's fine. <laughs> so what did you do? How did you find a job? I So I started working at this toy store in Georgetown in uh, D.C. That's kind of this, like, fancy she-she neighborhood. I don't know if you know anything about D.C., but like probably everybody in your high school that was in student government or was like the biggest annoying person, like probably lives in D.C. <laughs> like that's how it works Wow! because they all think they're going to be president one day or assistant to the president. And <laughs> so it's a really hard city not to have a career in because everybody is very careerist, right? Like and we always joke that like in D.C., the first question people ask about you is, uh, what do you do? Nobody says, who are you? How are you? They say, what do you do? LA is like that, too. And, you know, and saying like, oh, I'm 22 and I work at a toy store was uh, <laughs> it's not hot. 
And uh, and I just kept applying for jobs forever and ever. I just like knew that I couldn't afford an internship um, that was unpaid. I was like, that's not uh, my parents aren't wealthy. I don't have any kind of secret money. And um, and honestly, it's exploitative. <laughs> you know, it People. is. I'm just like, this is why all of our industries are like full of kids with privilege because they can afford to not work for a year while they get experience. I know. I'm so like I was working at Subway when I was 15. And now my dad tells me that everybody works there is like a grown adult. Like those jobs don't really yeah. exist any, anymore. It's, uh, the for, recession like, was like kids. very real, you know, like we it was like very devastating. And I think that we're only going to keep seeing more and more of those effects. Like I'm like, yeah, like, are we going to have to work till we're 90 or, you know, yeah. like, or are you going to see like baristas in their 70s, like in our generation? Like that's nuts. How did you keep your head up and how long I, were you at the toy store? And how I was did at the you... toy store probably for seven months and uh, and I just kept applying for jobs and finally I got one at a think tank because I was also picky. I was like, if the toy store pays my bills, then I'm actually going to take my time getting the job that I want. Yeah. And honestly, like I look back on it now and I was definitely struggling. Like I would walk to work because I was like couldn't afford to take that subway two ways, you know, and it was just like I had just enough money that I could pay my rent. And if I'd picked up a shift, then I could definitely afford PBR. Like it was that kind of life. (laughs) And Natty Ice. But also like I was happy, you know, I was like, well, like it's fine. And I think the thing that I was really lucky with is that my person, it was honestly like all my personality. Like sometimes you can give yourself a pat on the back and be like, oh, yeah, I'm really good under the pressure or whatever. And you're like, no, sometimes it's really just nature versus nurture. Like, this is how it pans out. And I was just like, you know, like, I'm an internally motivated person. I Also, there's no shame in, like, a a job that's hustle. So I'm kind of actually happy that I went through that experience. And I would go to parties and people would kind of look down on me or whatever. It, like, helps you find your people. But it's also, like, a thing where I was like, actually, you shouldn't be ashamed to work. Like, all work is good work and hustle is good, right? Mm -hmm. There's no, like, in French, we have a saying that's, like, there are no dumb jobs. And I think about that all the time. I'm like, no, like, you shouldn't be ashamed of, like, pulling a paycheck. Like, do what you need to do to pay your bills. How do you say it in French? Uh, Il n'y a pas de sous-métier. Ooh, pretty. I couldn't do that. And you also faced additional struggles being an immigrant. Um, Oh, yeah. how How did that influence your path? It was a little crazy. So I ended up having to apply for asylum because I was here. I came here as a student. I'm not like particularly close to my family. We had bopped all around the world. And the truth is that like I didn't have a home. I wasn't, you know, I always joke that like home is where the Wi-Fi connects automatically. (laughs) But um, that's like very true for me. I um, like my passport is from Guinea, but I've never lived there. I was born there. My parents didn't even live there at the time. I was born there and 10 days later I was on a plane out. So I literally did not have a home and didn't have like status anywhere. So I ended up having to apply for a political asylum for all these other political asylum reasons. And that took like a long time. Like that was in like the background of my life for a while. And uh, it's not fun. And whenever people talk about immigration, like it's this easy, like people just show up here and everything is easy. I'm like, talk to me. Um, I did everything the right way. I am like contribute all the right ways. Not that like you have to be a special person to immigrate because I hate that narrative also. There's no easy way. It's all hard. What kind of rights are you denied as someone who is an immigrant but not a citizen? Um, so when you are going through the process of being an asylee, for a while you can't even work. Like you're not allowed to work um, until you get work status. So it just takes a while to get all those things together. But now I'm, um, I'm a legal permanent resident. I am not allowed to vote 
but I can donate to candidates. So that makes me very happy. And I would say that's probably the biggest one. And also you don't have like a U.S. passport. So you still have to deal with like a ton of like travel and passport issues. And this administration, honestly, is making it really hard to be a legal permanent resident. It used to be like that was the, you know, like not everybody wants to be an American. You just want to be able to work and live where you make a living, right? And being a permanent resident afforded you that. And now they're rolling back so many of those rights that you have to become a citizen to feel like you're safe here. So what advice would you have for fellow immigrants or people who are thinking of employing immigrants? You know, for people who are thinking of employing immigrants, I would say, like, learn about how the immigration process works. It is hard. It is really anxiety-inducing, and it's really unfair in a lot of ways, and it's very expensive. But I just found that a lot of—like, I didn't get a lot of jobs when I was, like, I was legally able to be employed early in my career because people were like, I don't want to deal with this. Like, it just seemed too daunting. And— You know, that's really, there's something really unfair about that and really dumb. And it's just like, well, like, I'm a kid and I'm an immigrant. I have to deal with that. So you should also probably, I would say that to all Americans, learn about our immigration laws. And um, and also, like, don't be scared to hire immigrants. Like, you know, there's, I, I know that there's that whole mythology of, like, we work hard and we're high achievers or whatever. And that stuff is all true. But it also just, like, creates this burden that, like we have to be more excellent than everybody, <laughs> which is ludicrous. You should um, you should value people for being human beings, not for being like superheroes. And so, yeah, do that. And for kids who are immigrants who are, especially like if you're early in your career and you're stressed out, I would say like just keep pushing. Keep pushing. If this is where you want to live, like try everything, talk to everyone. But also like don't feel like you failed because you didn't make it in America. It turns out there are way better places to live now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Where where where's better? I mean I would, like I, I don't know, I all the Silicon Valley maybe. people are getting New Zealand citizenship. So I'm like, if Elon Musk is going, I'm going. Um yeah. you know, they're all preparing <laughs> for the apocalypse over there. So like, Yeah, they're like their helicopter escape routes and shit. I know. So how did you go from working in a toy store to landing yourself on the Forbes 30 under 30 list? Like, I've been trying to research this, and you founded Tech Lady Mafia, but you don't have a—I don't know if you have a background in technology. Just connect those dots for me. Oh, my God. It's all—listen, my career is very weird, and it's definitely like that—like, I keep going back to the recession because that's what it is. I'm like, I am somebody who, like, hustled my way out of necessity. And so I go to working at this think tank and I'm like, yes, this is what I want to do. Policy, it's going to be great. And uh, (laughs) it was not awesome. But while I was there, I was in this cohort that was all boys. My boss made it like very clear that he was only investing in the boys, not in me. (laughs) Um, Funny story. Nobody knows who they are now. So yeah, so I like did that for a while. And while I was there, like social media was kind of taking off. And I was like, well, this is one way to distinguish myself is... All these people are like struggling for the same assignments. I'm, I was really like, I like policy and I was really frustrated that, um, especially in DC, people talk about it like it's this very intellectual pursuit that only smart, intellectual people talk about. But I'm like, actually, policy affects everybody's life. If you don't know how to communicate it to the people that it's supposed to impact, then it actually <laughs> doesn't matter. Yeah. And so I was like, well, I'm going to find out a way to make this stuff relevant on social media because everybody's on Twitter now and blah, blah, blah. And started doing that. And it's in doing that that I like stumbled into tech because it was like, well, now I have to learn how to build a website. I have to do this. And it turns out that um, the Internet has the answers to everything and you just need to be able to learn. Uh And uh, and at the same time, like I kept meeting all these these like awesome ladies. You know, there is this thing that happens, I think, for a lot of us 
where you like crave uh, female mentorship because you're just like, there's all men. I don't know what to do. And there are so few women at the top and they're also swamped. They can't mentor all of us. And that you start feeling lonely. And then I just looked around and I was like, oh, look at all us women who want to be mentored. What if, what if we just like stuck together, you know, and yeah. taught each other like the stuff that we had. And everybody was so generous and open and yeah, and that's kind of how Tech Lady Mafia happened. We were like, well, like we we know that the statistics are true, that there's like four women who know how to computer in the whole country, whatever. Everything is depressing. But hmm. the truth is that like that's not true in my life. I'm like, I knew a ton of women who were engineers, who did stuff. My friend Erie, who's my co-founder in TLM, her best friend was a NASA uh, astronaut candidate that year. And even this year, she made it pretty far this year, which we're really excited about. She's definitely going to space. And so we were like, instead of like looking at the place of scarcity, what if we just came together and we gave each other the resources that we didn't have? And it was an email, 20 people, and now it's like a group of 3,000 all over the world. And it's been really fun to see everybody like level up their careers. Do people have to pay to be part of it? No, you do not have to pay. Um, and it, it's a very informal, um, like, Google listservs, um, what is it called, Google Groups-based thing where we're very much all about informal leadership. Like, in fact, the group has gotten too big. So now whenever people are like, can I join? We're like, actually, we're going to give you the tools to start your own group because you see diminishing returns the more people are part of the community. And we encourage people to like plan their own meetups, meet together. I just got an email from like the TLM women who are in China. Like a bunch of them are doing manufacturing and they just had like a get together. I was like, this is so rad. And there are all these designers in Europe. And really it's just about having a back channel, right? It's a place where you can go, hey, I got offered a job at Uber. Here's the salary I got. Here's the manager. And then somebody else will chime in and say, hey, actually that's pretty low. Or that guy is somebody that you should watch out for. Or, you know, like, hey, I just got this media opportunity, but I can't speak because of my job. Can I recommend another woman to do this? And then people will chime in. You know, like, we have a role that is really, um, this woman that is really rad, Natalia Oberti Noguera, like, taught us. That is, uh, we do ask and offers at all of our events where if two TLM women get together, every single person has to say one thing that they need help with and one thing that they can, a skill that they can help somebody with. So how have people found Tech Lady Mafia? Just friends referring friends? Yeah, it's been friends referring friends. Everybody in our community is like tethered to somebody else. And it's literally just the like, it's like the whisper network at work, right? In the beginning, we used to leave uh, business cards in the bathrooms of women conferences. And, <laughs> uh, and one day a woman gave one to me and I was like, yes. This is the best. She's recruiting me for my own group. I love it. So you have a really popular podcast, which is how I discovered you, called Call Your Girlfriend, that you do with your long-distance bestie, Ann Friedman. Uh, Why did you start the podcast, and what do you think differentiates it? Why why are people so hardcore about Call Your Girlfriend? Man, we started Call Your Girlfriend four years ago. We were like, it was before cereal. Um, (laughs) Which just meant that by the time that podcast had exploded, when people went, where like women podcasters we were there and we had a back catalog so really it was a lot of luck um we started podcast for many different reasons our producer gina delvac is amazing and she has a radio background and she was the one that was like oh you guys have these great conversations that should be podcasts and i was like that sounds nuts um 
I don't see the value proposition in that, but sure. And But really, like, I love Anne. I love Gina. I wanted to work on a project with them. We wanted to learn how to tell stories in a different medium. Like, I have, I have a, like, strong background in brand and marketing. Anne is, like, a, like, great writer. Gina does radio. And it was just an opportunity to do that. But also in the legend of CYG, a man once told me, a comedy bro once told me that, like, uh, women don't have, like, the patience or the aptitude for podcasts. And I was like, my man, if you're doing it, how hard can it be? And it uh, turns out, no, it's so hard. What does it take to launch a successful podcast for those listening who want to have a podcast? Because it is such a great way to market yourself and your business. It's true. But I also, I want to be really honest with people when I talk to them. Like, we were there really early. So I think that, like, we were able to ride a wave, honestly, that um, if we were launching a podcast today, I think the challenges would be different. Mm -hmm. The other thing that was true, too, is that, like, Anne is a journalist. I worked in media. Like, we... Like, even when we only had 100 listeners, it was the 100 right listeners. You know what I mean? And so the show grew from there. We were lucky to get a lot of press. And uh, and so that worked out in our favor. But here's what I'd say to anybody who's launching a podcast is to have, like, a strategy, have a strong work ethic behind it. Like, we release 52 episodes a year, once a week. There is no slacking off. We have been consistent. We, for two years, it was every other week and we were consistent with that. And then we were like, okay, we have scaled to the point where we can do once a week. And I think that the consistency is really important for the audience and also mm -hmm. investing in your craft. So if you can afford to pay like for studio use or whatever, that's great. But we all record ourselves because the show is once a week and we're both busy ladies who travel. And, uh, and our show is that, like, it's that long-distance phone call between friends. So I've recorded myself, like, from my house, from hotels, from uh, one time I was in the lactation room at an airport. Wow. <laughs> um, sorry to the Milking person it. that I held out, you know, but I'm like, I'm sorry, I, I got to pay these bills. So it's really, I think that, like, being consistent and wanting to learn. But the truth also of Call Your Girlfriend is that if four years ago Anna and Gina had said, do you want to start a really popular podcast and end up running like a small, uh, but very profitable media company? I would have said, no, that sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> and yeah. we, it just like all like accidentally, but like happened for us. But it is because we were consistent. We worked hard. And when the moment came, like we were able to be there. Where's Gina based? So how Gina do you guys do this? Gina is based in LA. She's based in L.A. Is Anne in L.A.? Anne is also in L.A. And I am in New York. So we have a classic long distance relationship. We've done D.C. L.A., S.F. L.A., D.C. Austin. So we move around. We're a very lean team. We work well together. You know, like we have meetings. We have business meetings. We have editorial meetings. Um, we run because we're all business married to each other now. Let me tell you, sharing a bank account and like getting an LLC together. Oof, oh my gosh. That's the next level of relationship. And so we're all there and everybody, the thing that's great about honestly working with uh, two other people is that no balls get dropped. Somebody's expertise always comes in. Somebody will always pick up the slack. Like I've been dealing with a lot of health issues recently. I was diagnosed with endometrial cancer and the like business of the podcast has been running seamlessly because... Anne and Gina are amazing. Okay, I'm really enjoying this conversation, but 
We have to take a quick break to tell you a little bit more about the brand new podcast series we're launching in partnership with Sephora Collection, which this episode is really celebrating because Amina is going to be hosting one of the episodes called Hashtag Lip Stories. We'll be taking a deep dive with six incredible creators, founders, and thought leaders as they take us through some of their most notable, inspiring, funny stories from their everyday lives. While we're out traveling the world, crushing it at work, just hanging out with friends, it's super funny, inspiring, and as always, candid. Yeah, I love it. And can we just talk about the actual hashtag lip stories lipstick for a second? Because I'm obsessed with them. They look so good on you. And they come in (laughs) they come in 40 different shades and in three different finishes, matte, cream, and metal. And they're eight dollars. So if you go out and pick up the whole collection, I can't really blame you. With each lipstick is a story, and then within that are different colors. They're all based on real-life stories, like the ones we'll be sharing on Lip Stories Podcast. And where might we find one of these magical lipsticks, Maggie? Well, there's no surprise. You can find it on Sephora.com. Okay, I know how to get there. Okay, good. Or your nearest Sephora store if you like to do things in real life. Cool. Well, thank you, Maggie, as always. And back to Amina. So you've battled endometrial cancer, but you just got some really, I mean, the best news you could probably ever get in your life is that you are officially in remission. But that was, I'm sure, a really, really difficult time for you. Uh, Why did you decide to go public with your battle with cancer? Yeah, it's, man, cancer is so weird because it literally is everywhere, but nobody talks about it. So you think that it's nowhere. Um, And breast cancer, for the women's cancers, breast cancer gets all the glory. They get all the best classes at the support group. They, um, you know, the NFL wears their helmets. Everybody knows what that is. But they gyne- bracelets. Yeah, but gynecological cancers, you know, that's uh, below the breast, and it's an area that people don't like to talk about, so nobody hears about it. And it's really interesting. I was honestly, if it was up to me, I would have like privately had cancer and like never even told some of my closest friends because that's the kind of weirdo I am. And uh, I was kind of forced into the situation in the sense that, like, a couple of friends were there. I've had health issues for the last five years. And, you know, so it's like you got to open up to your, like, closest and nearest. And I saw how devastating it was for them, you know. And I was like, oh, like, here's what's going on. I'm hopeful. Like, I don't know what this means. You know, like, I don't know if it means that I'm going to be here next year or I'm going to be here, like, more years. I had no clue. But um, my mom also died when I was in college. So I feel like I had a grasp on just, like— death and grieving and things that a lot of um, a lot of people like my age didn't. But I watched mm-hmm. it be really devastating to them. And I was like, well, I can't ask them to keep the secret for me. One, because like they need to find other people to talk to about it. I was like, don't talk to me about it because I'm a mess and I'm in therapy. But like, my God, find each other and talk to each other about it. All of my friends have secret group chats about me now, I found out. <laughs> um, oh, my God. How can you help a friend? I mean, what's the best way to help someone who's going through a significant health battle? Is there is there things you should say or not say? Yeah. When somebody is going through a significant event, I would say two things. One is to really listen to them um, and ask like very direct questions, right? It's like, what do you want? What do you need? Also, I think that like you need to know your place in the sense that... Um, If you're just an acquaintance, like, reach out, but don't overwhelm, you know? And I think that it's different for other people. So you need to learn how to read the room. There's actually, like, a ton of really good writing on this. But I would say that for close friends, it's, like, know when to ask for boundaries. And then some things you should just do. Like, my friends 
all planned like a meal train for me where for a month there was just food at my house like three times a day somebody else took care of it I don't even know how it happened but it was there I did not have to worry about feeding myself um I always had somebody to go to the doctor with I which is really intense when you're going through cancer because after I heard the word cancer I couldn't hear anything else and having somebody else there was good because they would take notes and and really I would say it's to be there like if you say that you're going to be there be there if you don't have the capacity to like that's fine But also, you know, like, don't treat people like a leper who are going through illness. Like, we're still the same funny, whatever, like, same anxieties or, you know, like, whatever. I've been, uh, I have to, I'm seeing, like, my therapist sent me to a cancer therapist. I thought he was trying to break up with me. Wow. And and so now I have two therapists. And the cancer therapist, I was like, oh, cancer therapy is just like regular therapy. It's still your dad's fault. This is, like, we're still talking about the same things here. And, uh, you know, so I would say, like, if you're a friend, like, be there and Think about like if you were going through it, like what you would want to happen. But the thing that I found too is that like I'm a really hard person to help because I'm like, you know, I'm really independent. I'm very self-sufficient. It was a real challenge where I was like, oh, wow, like I am always there for my friends and now they want to be there for me and I'm not allowing them, you know, and mm-hmm. and that was something that was really hard for me. And I was like, well, we're all going through this together, so we need to deal with it. And the other thing is that in doing all of my research, I just found that so many, um, especially like black women, die more of these um, gynecological cancers than white women, even though white women get them more. And like thinking about those health disparities and how much taboo there is about talking about your body or whatever, I felt a sense of responsibility of being like, hi, this is me. Like uh, some days are good and some days are bad. But, you know, like this is like this is life. People people um, manage cancer diagnoses all the time. And also even the language around it is so intense. Like everybody always talks about cancer battles and all of this. You know, it sounds like you're going to war. And I always tell people that I'm just I'm managing a cancer diagnosis. You don't have to feel superhuman or strong. It's like some days are good. Some days are bad. All you can do is take care of yourself and follow your doctor's instructions and get more information. And yeah, you know, but a lot of people in their 30s are getting cancer and there's such few resources for us because it is different whatever stage of life you're in. Cheryl Sandberg says that the proper response for someone who's grieving, which is different, but, you know, being, you know, having a diagnosis is, I'm sure, uh, causes a lot of grief. She says the proper thing to say to someone is, how are you today? Do you agree with that? I 100 percent agree with that. It's like, how are you today? How are you right now? You know, and honestly, just like being there and listening, it makes all of the difference because you'll find whenever you go through challenging things like this, you will really find uh, you'll find out like who your people are. You know, Mm -hmm. it could be that like somebody who you thought was like, um, you know, like just an acquaintance is the person that steps up and somebody that was really close doesn't. It's it's a, you know, it's an unfortunate but clarifying way to find out who your tribe is. Mm-hmm. But also, like, it's a way to deepen all your relationships. It's like, if we're all going to be in community together, we need to be vulnerable to each other. And, you know, what's more vulnerable than being sick? So, like, I love my village. Everybody showed up, and I am so grateful. There's nothing like crisis to show you who the Fairweather friends are. Oh, 100%. Um, 100%. Not to compare cancer to bankruptcy but (laughs) I've experienced that on a different level no it's true I mean listen it like you know it's like when everything's going well everything is going well but this these are the times that you like prepare yourself for right and and I don't know like and I think that you're the same way like you're somebody who's built community like friendships are important to you 
And like, this is the stuff that life is made of. And then it's like, who's going to run and who's going to stay? And you need to know that in a real way. And you need to know that. um, And you need to know that so that your response is also appropriate, right? Because I am now going through all of the times in my mind where I had a friend that was going through something tough. And I was like, wow, like I didn't step up enough or I didn't do this enough. Or, you know, like not saying that I'm beating myself up, but really recognizing the ways that like I could have been more helpful. And we should all be so lucky to have this many friends to lean on. I mean, your friends sound so amazing. But what I find being super busy, and I have some amazing, amazing friends and mentors who I'm constantly texting and asking for advice, but it's also hard to like catch up and like stay in touch and actually see them. How do you manage being super busy and making your friends feel like you still care about them? And it is hard. I'm not going to lie to you. It's like very, very, very hard. But I think that I'm just used to it from a really young age because we moved so much, you know? I don't think I ever, until uh, I was in college, I didn't live in the same house for like three years at a time, like ever. And my solution to this, honestly, is to, I don't beat myself up about it because, you know, there's only 24 hours in the day. The only person who makes the most of the 24 hours is Beyonce, as far as I'm concerned. Oh my God. And the rest of us are just trying to keep up. But, you know, there's only 24 hours in the day. And there's so many people that we love. Like, we live in a time that we're so connected through technology to people. It's like, what does it even mean to be a friend now um, uh-huh. is a question that's yes. different to our parents than it is to us, right? And that's a whole uh, podcast in and of itself. That's a whole show. That's what we talk about on Clear Girlfriend all the time. It is just this like, what does it mean to be a friend? Like I was thinking about this. I was like, you know, if I ever got married, like I couldn't pick like five people to be my bridesmaids. (laughs) That's just like, that's the thing I could never do because it would have to be like 50 women up there probably, you know? And like for our parents, they were like three bridesmaids because those are like the three friends they had. They like still know them. They still hang out with them. And I'm like, that's wild. I've kind of accepted that I'm always disappointing somebody, even with when I have the best intentions and I try my hardest. Yeah, I'm always shortchanging someone. Yeah, but listen, I think that this is like the social contract where like, you have to acknowledge that there's only so much that you can do and other people also have to cut you slack. So my solution for this, honestly, is I, whenever I'm thinking about somebody, I reach out to them in the moment, whether it's a text message or I will drop a thing in the mail for them or I will shoot them an email or a text. You don't have to feel that every time you see someone, it has to be a catch up. And I think that like for a lot of us kids who are like third culture kids who grew up like traveling a lot, you know that feeling where it's like you're always constantly missing someone. You're always on the go. And there is a lot of grace in just being like, you know what, like life happens just because I wasn't there for this doesn't mean that I don't care for you. It's just these are the life circumstances. And every time you get together with them, you can talk about where they are at right now, just like that grieving advice, right? It's like if every time you get together with a friend, you're going through like, here's everything that happened in the last four years since I've seen you, then it gets exhausting and you also don't get to get like what's going on with them. But I think that we can all be better about keeping in touch in ways that don't feel overwhelming, right? It's like, you can put a postcard in the mail. You don't even have to leave your house. You can like hang it at the mailbox and the mail person will pick it up. I feel like Facebook used to be that, but now it's just not anymore. You have to actually like make more of an effort. You do, but you know, I like, it's like try your best. I just, I think that like there is, we we have too many friends. We have too many friends and we know too many people and we care about all of them. And all you can do is your best, you know, and and your real friends are the ones that don't make you feel like shit for like um, for like wanting to work hard and like make a life for yourself and also be there for them. 
Mm-hmm. So speaking of friendship, Anne started a blood drive in your honor called Bleeding for Amina. What is happening with that now and how can we get involved? Oh, my God. Bleeding for Amina has gone global. So when when I told Anne that I had cancer, Anne's my best friend, she was like already off the phone, like packing her bags, looking at an Airbnb near me so she could move here. She was like, we're like, we we're going to get through this. <laughs> and I was like, Anne, I don't want this to be disruptive to our lives. Like, yes, I was like, if I'm on my deathbed, you better be here. But, you know, if I just have to like do this stuff, like I can handle this. So I was like, um, you know, and she's a good friend. So she understands my boundaries. And I had to be really clear. I was like, I love you. I just like I would feel I would feel too much pressure if, like, everybody dropped their lives to be here with me right now. Like, here's the here's what I need from everybody. And so Anne, like, being the infinite, incredible woman that she is, is like, okay, Amina has boundaries. I'm going to respect her boundaries, but here's how I'm going to channel all of my Midwest diva energy. <laughs> so she planned this blood drive, and it started in five cities. It's Austin, Chicago, um, New York, D.C., and San Francisco. And uh, now has exploded to so many more cities in the country where our listeners are planning their own. You can go to callyourgirlfriend.com slash blood drive. Um, if I get the URL wrong, it's definitely just a tab on callyourgirlfriend.com. <laughs> and you don't have to, uh, don't feel any pressure to like give blood on the days that you have to or like sign up. But I think that when I was, when I was going through all of my stuff the last couple of years, um, I had to have like a lot of blood transfusions. And, you know, that stuff just shows up from the blood bank and it's literally a life-saving gift. And I was like, I don't know how many strangers have given me blood. Like, I just, all I know is that I have received pints and pints and pints of it. And I think that it is one of the, like, easiest, most generous ways that we can give back to another human being. One, um, One donation probably helps up to three people. So think about the viral effects of that. And people really, people really, really need it. So... If you're feeling like you want to do, like, it's the best form of slacktivism. I'm like, are you kidding me? You go give blood. They give you a snack. You don't have to sign anything, talk to anybody. (laughs) You don't have to, like, sign a petition, go out to vote. Like, this is easy. What would your advice be for someone who's sick, either like, but like long-term sick, either cancer or maybe a mental illness, like bipolar, who's afraid to talk to their employer, you know, in fear of them being judged or changing the trajectory of their career? Like, how do you talk to your boss or HR about that? Man, that's really tough. And I'm glad that you're actually asking that because that's one of the privileges that I always tell people I have. Like, I'm self-employed. I'm my own boss. (laughs) So that conversation is really easy to have. And I look back over the last five years how sick I was when I worked in an office. And I was, like, very hesitant about having that conversation. I was pretty open with my bosses that I was sick and whatever, but it, it still made me feel like my job was in jeopardy, even though they were all great and it wasn't. I think that, one, before you talk to your boss, you should definitely look at your HR policies because I don't want, you know, like, I don't want to tell everybody, like, go talk to your boss and it's not cool. Is like, you should know what your HR policies are. And if the policies are lacking, you can tell HR about it without making it about yourself, you know, and be like, hi, like a benefit of working here that would be great is like X, Y, Z, like days off or being able to work from home or whatever for health reasons. So that's the thing you don't have to engage with your boss with. You engage with the machine of the place that you work at, you know, and then I think that like if whatever you are going through is affecting your work, you owe it to yourself to talk to your manager and um to like really level with them because, you know, like people can't have compassion for you or cut you slack 
if they don't have the full picture of information of what is going on, right? And that's not to say that it's an easy conversation or that it won't have repercussions for you, you know, or that it's like an excuse that your work is not getting done, but it's the truth about where you're at. So I would say that that's true. But my challenge would really be to workplaces and to people that are managers to make it easy to have that conversation with them. Because illness is a part of life, you know, like it happens all the time. And even the fact, the simple fact that like when women get pregnant, it's treated as a disability in the office, you know, like that's that's the leave that you have to take if you don't have maternity leave is disability leave is so wild to me. And so, you know, it's like it's up to the managers and to work to make it an easy conversation to have. There is nothing alienating about not feeling well. It will happen to all of us at some point. So a lot of people like to ask this question what's next, which I think can be a dangerous one. It's one I'm always curious of because you're a hustler, you've entered a new chapter in your life, and maybe what's next doesn't really matter. Maybe you're relishing the moment. If it's relevant to you, Amina, what's next? You know, honestly, I've never been a person with like a five-year plan or a 10-year plan. I'm very much in the moment. I'm just trying not to drown every day. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, like I think the one truth is that I don't know what's next, but I know like things I want to do. I want to write a book, maybe a couple books. I want to take my talents to Los Angeles one day. I, you know... But mostly I'm like, I'm just like really happy to be alive and to be well right now. And so that's that's where my focus is. I was somebody who always ran myself into the ground with work, like just, you know, would like hop up a plane to go to a meeting, knowing fully well that I needed to go to the ER instead and then show up at the ER feeling like I was a warrior. And when I got sick and I had to stop working full time and I had to go to all these people that I owe to work to and be like, sorry, I can't finish this contract. I can't do this. I'm literally having surgery in two weeks. And then I have to recover. I have cancer. I there, I didn't feel guilty about it at all. And honestly, throughout all of this, like, of course, I like worry about money and whatever. Like, that's real. Like, that's why we work. But I was like, wow, I the last thing on my mind has been work, you know, and That was really eye-opening for me. I was like, I'm really glad that I learned this lesson at 32 and not at 82 (laughs) because (laughs) that would have been, like, really sad. I'm like, I want to focus on my relationships. I want to focus on my own interest. And I just want to be gentle with myself for a little bit, you know? I'm like, one day I'm sure I'll join the rat race again. (laughs) Um, I'm always like, I'm like, when I I beat cancer, it's over for all (laughs) Um, (laughs) y'all. Here I come. Yeah, I'm like, look at everything I was doing while I was sick. (laughs) Um, But not really, you know? I think that, like, there is more to life than work. That's true. And and I've started to think about my work a little differently, too, right? Where I was like, oh, like, what do I want to be remembered for? And that's different from the grind of day-to-day work. And uh, and so I went, I'm glad that I get some, like, mandatory time off to think about that. And really, I just hope, like, my hope for myself is that I keep um, pursuing my curiosity and that there will always be some way for a weirdo like me to make money and, like, not starve. I mean, I think it's such a lesson in that, you know, when we get laid off, when we, I mean, again, can't compare that to what you've been through, but life throws all kinds of wrenches in our in our plans. And the smartest people, the resilient people figure out what they can learn from it and how they can benefit from it, um, even if it's the, the hardest thing in the world. And um, and sometimes it means not having a plan for what's next. So Right. I'm, and also I'm just glad. being honest about the fact that you don't know what's next. Right. And we live in a culture, honestly, that really fetishizes um, young people's success. Like mm-hmm. even when you brought up the Forbes 30 under 30, I'm like, it's a really nice accolade. I would be lying if I said that it did not open doors for me. 
but I didn't want to be the girl who was like, uh, you know, on on a print magazine award years from now when like magazines don't even exist anymore. And, you know, I don't want to be that girl that peaked at 30, right? I'm like, I want to be like the hundred under 100. (laughs) Like that's where, (laughs) that's like the stuff that matters. The 50 between 50 and 100. Exactly. Like, you know, we put so much, especially like, you know, you know, you like are around the tech world and media and whatever. We, We have such this obsession for like wunderkinds, right? And every year that I grew up, I'm like, wow, I was such an idiot last year. Every year I realize how little I know. And just I'm like, yeah, I'm like, young people are foolish. We know nothing. I can't believe people give us responsibilities. This is nuts. I know. And, you know, I'm like, I really, I want to have a lasting career. I want to have a lasting impact. I want to, I want to have success when I'm in my 60s, you know, because I look at the way that we make, especially like older women feel invisible and all this stuff. And it's just it's so terrible. It's like we're full human beings. We're going to be here for a while. So we might as well like live, you know, like fully that whole time. And, you know, even hearing you talk about how uh, you're like, oh, like my experience with bankruptcy or whatever is not the same as cancer. It's like, I hear that. But the truth is that like building resilience is important for every facet of your life, you know, because if it's not bankruptcy or it's not cancer, it like could be something else. Like everybody has challenges. They're all relative. And they are, it's like plate tectonics shift under you. And you can either sink or you can like pick yourself up and like make something of it. And so many people always say like, oh, you're so brave. I couldn't go through that. And I'm sure that people say that to you because you had this like very public experience. But the truth is that you don't know what you're capable of until you go through it. And you are capable of a lot more than you think. Yeah. So you can only hope that life throws those wrenches in in your plans, right? Yeah. So that's a great segue. There's a couple questions that I ask everybody that come on Girlboss Radio. And one thing that we're cracking here at Girlboss is this concept of success. You know, you mentioned Wonderkins and just our obsession with being on these lists. And I wound up on all these lists. I wound up on the cover of Forbes and it kind of doesn't really matter. Yes, it opened doors for me. But when I feel successful, it means I feel successful in my personal life. It means I got to pet my dogs. It means maybe I made a smoothie for my for myself, uh, went to the farmer's market or, you know, figured out something about my mental health with a therapist, right? What does success mean to you? You know, I'm still trying to figure that out. I know that I've, like, done well up until this point. I don't know that I can say that I've been successful because I don't have a personal metric for that. I am a very self-motivated person, so um, which is good and bad. <laughs> it's a uh, and and like my own internal barometer is really strong for that stuff. So it's like even making all these lists, I'm like, yeah, that's really nice. But if I don't feel that way, then uh, nobody's opinion matters but my own, you know. And I think that like honestly, I will feel successful when I get eight hours of sleep. I wake up and can just like bound out of bed. I drink my gallon of water that day. I mind my own business. Don't get into anybody's drama. And just like live at peace knowing that I don't have to worry about something like breaking. I'm like that, like success to me has so much to do with inner peace and not like um, an accolade that comes externally, you know? And just feeling like I'm adulting right because I'm just like, wow, I'm like, adult life is hard. It is, they do not prepare you for this stuff. (laughs) So I'm like, okay, the day that I get the hang of this thing is the day that I'll feel like I made it. 
Cool. And we have this thing called Girl Boss Moments on Girl Boss Radio, which is kind of means anything at this point. <laughs> it's the time in your week or month that you most recently remember that you felt like you were in charge of your life or accomplished something, just that moment where you weren't just accomplishing the things that you put in your calendar many weeks ago and may not even care about anymore. Amina, what was your most recent girl boss moment? Oh my God, that's so funny that you asked that. It was this morning. I got out of the shower and I was dancing in front of the mirror. <laughs> and uh, and I was like looking at my schedule for the day and I was like, oh, I'm having lunch with a friend. I'm ha- gonna have this fun chat with Sofia Maruso and I'm gonna get a plane and go home. I remember just thinking like, wow, it's the first time in a long time that I feel like myself. I have like all of the energy to do what I wanna do. And I just felt so happy to be alive in that moment. And then I just like, I just kind of like took it all in. I was like, oh, I'm in Austin to do this like weirdo conference. I'm getting to interview Hillary Clinton next week again. And uh, it's the second time. And just like, I'm like, I'm just a girl from a small West African country whose life could have been so different. And this is my life now. And I just like kept dancing to Rihanna in the mirror. It was great. Amina, thank you so much for joining me on Girl Boss Radio. And thank you, everybody, for listening again. I don't know. It's been a few years since we launched this podcast. Amina is joining us as part of a special partnership with Sephora Collection. And as a matter of fact, we've actually joined forces to put together a first for Girl Boss and a first for Sephora Collection. It's a whole new podcast series of incredible storytelling from notable founders, creators, and thought leaders called Hashtag Lip Stories where these women will be sharing some of their wildest moments, exceptional experiences, and unforgettable memories from their real lives. Be sure to download Hashtag Lip Stories on April 12th on the Girl Boss Radio Network in the iTunes Store or wherever good podcasts are found. <laughs>